0: Hello and welcome to the Friday, February 26, 2021 edition of On Iowa Politics. So I'm thinking that based on Bruce Springsteen's recent experience, we should invite former President Barack Obama to be on the podcast in case any of us should get charged with OWI, just in case it's not what you glow, but who you know, or something like that.
1: <laughs> Yikes. Hey,
0: I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Uh, good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. <laughs> Tom is choking at his coffee. Uh, <laughs> Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Uh, good morning, Amy.
2: Good morning, James. Let, let's think of a new tagline, maybe.
0: <laughs> uh, Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper Statehouse Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. Yeah, I was going to say, make sure you don't get that one backwards. <laughs> And said Opinion Editor, Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up, stolen elections. I know surprise here. The Iowa legislature has passed and sent to Governor King Reynolds a sweeping elections bill that will shorten the early voting period, reduce local control of the elections, make it easier to remove people from the voting rolls if they don't participate in an election, limit what county auditors can do to promote early voting, and to the delight of news reporters, close polls an hour earlier. Apparently, this is necessary not because of record voter turnout in the 2020 election, but because of the outcome of the presidential election. In a Senate debate, Republican Jim Carlin of Sioux City, who has announced plans to run for the U.S. Senate, said a majority of the 32-member GOP caucus believes the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. Over in the House, Pat Grassley uh, made a point of saying it was not about stolen elections but about election security. So they can't be stolen, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is more surprising, Todd, that at least 17 GOP senators believe uh, that Carlin uh, could use, and Carlin could use that debunked argument as a reason for these changes, um, or, or that he would admit it during a debate.:
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't think either is all that surprising. I mean, Jim Carlin is, you know, he's he talked about these issues when he announced his his Senate campaign, you know, earlier this month, and uh, and, you know, we saw during the subcommittee process. I mean, Jason Schultz is a state senator who basically also said that we're, you know, we need to do this because of all the things that happened around the country and the shady stuff that happened in, you know pennsylvania and and all these other places where republicans are convinced that votes were hauled in on on you know in u-haul trucks and things like that and the dominion voting systems were being controlled by someone in venezuela or something i'm not exactly sure how that works but uh so yeah it's not i mean this is what it's about and it's what it's about in all the other states around the country where they're pushing laws like this uh georgia is a good example i mean you had Two Democrats win Senate runoffs, and uh, Biden won the presidency. Won won their electoral votes narrowly. while they're going into the code to make sure that doesn't happen again. <laughs> so this is uh, this is sort of a nationwide thing that Republicans are doing, and they're using this. You know, some people think that the election was was uh, rigged as the excuse for doing it. Some people. Some
0: they people. know. Aaron, uh, you followed, yeah, you followed the, the debate on the elections bill and um, obviously opponents called it uh, voter suppression. Um, how significant are these changes and who's not going to be able to vote uh, in 2022?
3: Um, it's, it it is very, very significant, especially when you're talking about um, early voting. So, so anybody who has um, taking advantage of early voting in, in past elections, that's going to look different um, in the future, uh, assuming Governor Reynolds signs this into law. Um, the time in which you'll be able to do that will be shorter. Um, you will get your ballot, if you request it by mail, it will be mailed to you uh, a, a little more than a week shorter to the closer to the election than it was before, and you'll have less time to get it back. And by the way, it has to be back to the auditor by election day anymore, regardless of when it's postmarked. Um, they made that big change, too. So <clears throat> if, if you're talking about what's the impact, impact to the regular voter out there, it, it's significant, to, especially if you are um, uh, have in the past or plan to in the future, again, uh, vote early. Um, they, they really overhauled that and made the time frame shorter and <clears throat> made it more difficult in some ways, too. They made it Harder for county auditors to set up satellite locations. They can only have one drop box per county, and it has to be at the auditor's office. Some of the bigger counties are are worried about that, only being able to have one drop box for, you know, hundreds of thousands of residents. So um, there's a lot of other changes that that get a little more into the weeds um, and, you know, impact county auditors who... um, violate state law and um uh but but the the early voting mechanisms are what dramatically changed in this bill
0: yeah well one thing that that i think is worth pointing out is that the average early voting window uh across all the states is 22 days so 20 days you know isn't like an outlier um i mean i i to borrow a line from the Democrats, what problem are we trying to solve here? But, uh, I mean, it, it's sort of, Iowa still is in line with most of the states. Uh, I did, you know, 29 days, then it seemed to be a problem. 40 days, I don't know. I mean, it, it you know, there there's some state, I think it's Alabama, 55 days of early voting. It's like, holy smokes, <laughs> you, know, <I> mean, <laughs> and, you know, a primary and a general, and then, you know, you're shooting the year right there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so- Uh, I I think that's what's getting most of the attention.
3: Uh, You're exactly right. The national average is 22 and Iowa's will be 20 now. So for the early voting window, that will be uh, very close. The the one difference and the one thing that bears noting is uh, I mentioned that time that auditors can send out if you choose to get your ballot by mail. Um, That would be at 20 days would be at the lower end of the spectrum across the country. And, And that does matter in that, you did hear some elections officials um, of both political parties say they're worried. It, I know three weeks sounds like a lot to us, um, but, but they expressed genuine concern with that being enough time to mail out a ballot, the, the voter to receive it, fill it out and send it back. And again, have it, make sure it's backed by that hard deadline on election day. And And the other thing they kind of added to that is it really doesn't leave any wiggle room for mistakes. If you, if you, don't fill out the information correctly or something and you have to do it again. Now you're really in a pinch in that, in that, in that 20 day window for mail voting.
0: Yeah. And I guess the other thing to watch is, you know, in two years, if the legislature, you know, shortens that 20 day window to 15, you know, Hey, two weeks, who needs more time than that? So uh, that's something to watch Amy. Um, County auditors, I, I think, we're pretty much unanimously opposed to this bill and to these changes. What uh, is their beef with these changes?
2: Well, obviously, um, the auditors sort of get into this because they're looking to um, expand access in most cases um, for people to to vote. And then once they're in office for a while, they're just sort of finding ways to do that a little bit better and just make sure that everybody's, you know registered um you know every all the documentation is there their their votes are counted plus they know the the impact on their own staff and and how much time that's going to take to get everything done and they have to then every single time something like this passes change up their whole policies and procedures beyond that obviously now you've got a potential felony charge if you get any of that wrong not only a felony charge but punishable way up to five years in prison and a fine up to $10,000. So obviously this is kind of a big deal. I mean, some of them spoke at the hearing, um, you know, some of them were, they're Democrats, but Republicans too, that Adams County Auditor spoke about, um, you know, these smaller rural counties that have large elderly populations that would prefer to vote absentee or early voters um, just because of weather concerns, health concerns, that sort of thing. So the general consensus from county auditors is they haven't been consulted on this. They really don't agree with this. They're, they're wondering what problem basically the legislature is trying to solve. And they think that there are better ways of doing this, even if they're ideologically, you know, in line with Republicans. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Some of the changes just, I mean, like the one, one drop box per county, um, you know, maybe in Adams County, that's enough in Polk County or Lynn County or Scott, you know, I mean, it, you know, it, it's just not practical uh, you know, to do that. And it, it's really, uh, it, it seems
1: punitive, but
0: Todd, I, I guess the good news is that by doing this, it's going to shorten the campaign season.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, just ask Jim Carlin. <laughs> He's already announced for U.S. Senate. The campaign is already abbreviated. I mean, that's Yeah, that was among the dumbest of the arguments that were made in, in favor of this bill. So, yeah, I don't think the campaign's going to be that short. Sure.
0: Well, and it also means that all those phone calls that we get are going to come in a shorter period of time. I mean, I
1: don't know. It's just like. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
0: So, um, speaking of shortening the election season, Tom, um, I take it Senator Chuck Grassley is extending the period of speculation on whether he will or won't run for reelection. Uh, I understand this week he said it, he changed his position from announcing within several weeks to sometime this fall.
4: Yeah, th- th- to be honest, um, I don't know that it is a delay. Um, you know, as Perry Beeman from the Iowa Capital Dispatch reported, Grassley earlier this month told reporters on a conference call that he may decide in a few weeks whether he'd seek another term in 2020, indicating that maybe he was getting closer to announcing whether he would run. Uh, On Wednesday, as you mentioned, he said he anticipated making a decision in September, October, or November. Going back to previous comments he made, you know, previously he said his decision was months off, likely sometime this fall. Personally, I think Grassley maybe probably just most misspoke when he told reporters that his decision was a few weeks off. Um, the senator is pretty set in his ways. I don't think he really moved up his timetable. Um, as for why wait until the fall, at the moment there doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency to announce. Um, <laughs> though, though, though the announced retirements in the Senate of Rod Portman, Pat Toomey, Richard Burr, and Richard Shelby has put added pressure on Gasly to run for reelection. You know, Republicans just need to flip one seat next year to win back the Senate majority, but their retirements are complicating their path back to power. Um, but Grassley has said, uh, quote, from my standpoint, I didn't feel under pressure that I have to decide really quickly. Um, but if Grassley were to retire, an earlier announcement would make the party, uh, w- would give the, the, the party more time to field um, strong replacement candidates. Um, but again, I don't sense a sense of urgency from, from the Senator, you know, he cruised a reelection in 2016, defeating, um, Democrat Patty judge by 24 percentage points. I think he's served in elected office continually since 1959, when he joined the state legislature, his campaign has, I think 1.8 million, uh, cash on hand, um, And then I think to your last question about uh, Jim Carlin and if he's worried about a primary challenge from him, I don't think he's worried about a primary from Jim Carlin. I think any objective, rational observer knows that Carlin has an uphill battle. Given Grassley's name recognition, his long tenure, his ubiquitous presence in the state with his full Grassley tour of all 99 counties in the state, you know, the fact that he gets out to every corner, you know, every part of the state to, to reach voters. He's seen as accessible. Um, He's got backing by influential deep pocketed agriculture groups, and I could go on and on. Um, But, you know, if if there is anything delaying the decision until the fall, I think it may have to do more with his health and whether he fills up to, to another campaign in another term, He's 87. He'd be 95 at the end of what would be his eighth term.
0: Yeah. And I guess it to me and I don't know about others here, but if he's waiting until fall, that seems to be a signal that he's uh, running for reelection, because, as you said, Tom, the earlier other people know that he's not running. It gives them time to put together a campaign and, and not that there's, you know, people aren't thinking about it. Uh, but they need time to put together a campaign yeah. uh it just seems like- another signal that he's gonna run unless like you say his health becomes an issue uh before this fall
4: yeah absolutely yeah i again i i think that's a good indication that yeah he he is gonna run um now, the question is whether you know so if he runs and if he you know likely wins reelection um I think the question then becomes does he fill out his full term or does he step down early and uh, have Governor Reynolds um, appoint a replacement and tap his uh, his grandson to fill the rest of the seat?
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that'll keep the, the, the conspiracy theorist uh, busy, uh, the, the hot stove league sort of uh, speculation about uh, him retiring and someone yeah. else being appointed to, uh, you know, uh, yeah. We could, we could devote a whole podcast to that, I think. One thing that um, Grassley won't have to worry about is redistricting because he runs on a statewide basis, but uh, the redistricting process in Iowa is sort of up in the air on hold right now because uh, the, the census delays, they aren't gonna be delivering data to the state until September 30th, which is 29 days past the deadline for the state legislature to approve new maps for congressional and legislative districts. Um, Legislative legislative leaders say they're exploring their options, they're talking among themselves and with the governor's office, Uh, but it seems like short of a constitutional change, their choices are pretty limited here, Todd. Uh, After September, if there's no map, the issue goes to the Supreme Court. Um, How likely is it that the Supreme Court is going to draw a map, uh, or can they put a put the whole process on hold and restart it when the data is available.
1: Well, I, I think they'll, you know, they have to wait till the data is available. Otherwise, you know, you don't have any information to draw the maps. They'll, they'll probably, and it will be up to them because there, there aren't going to be any changes. You can't make changes, you know, to the deadline and stuff uh, at this point. So it probably will go to the court. The court will probably work with the legislative services agency to you know, that, that draws the maps normally. Uh, I, I doubt whether the, you know, the justices will, you know, get out their Sharpies and try to make up some districts, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be delayed. And then, then the question becomes, you know, can, can it even be ready for 2022 or, or what happens? I mean, it's, yeah, that's, it's, it's all up in the, all up in the air, as you say.
0: Yeah. Um, not that any of us would remember this, but back in 1970, there was a challenge to the the, the new maps and basically the court uh, stepped in and then they did a do over in 1971, I, I suppose. I mean, there are a number of options here. And I, I asked the Supreme Court spokesman and he told me this morning that the chief justice does not speculate. Uh, On these sorts of things, so uh, no indication from the court about (laughs) what they might do. Um, But I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right, Todd, that they probably would rely on uh, LSA to draw those maps. Uh, They have the the, uh, they'll have the data and the um, computer software to do that sort of thing. Things that the the court doesn't deal with on a on a daily basis. Probably, as someone said, it's not part of their core competency.
3: Um, The one thing I just wanted to jump in and add to this is if we learned anything about this legislature over the past few years, um, it's their eagerness to uh, insert themselves into as many political arenas as possible. So um, I'm sure that they are and kind of got that sense from Speaker Grassley yesterday when he did his weekly press conference that they are exploring every possible avenue. Uh, to where they can still be the leaders in this process. Uh, I, I don't know what that is. I'm not a constitutional or lawyer or census expert, so I don't know what those opportunities are, but I'm, I'm sure those lead, Republican leaders right now are, are trying to find every possible avenue to make sure that they are involved in the redistricting process and that it doesn't go straight to the courts.
0: One thing, LSA has a lot of data already on population, uh, you know, where the population is and the changes since 10 years ago. Um, I I suppose, Aaron, that the the legislature could direct them to start preparing maps. Um, It it sounds like the congressional district maps probably aren't as much of a problem as as, the legislative maps. But, you know, start at least start the process and have some uh, pencil lines drawn uh, so that the legislature could still be involved. But um, yeah, I, I think, it, you know, drawing any map without the 2020 census data probably just opens it up to be challenged in court and delaying the process uh, further. Um, so I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, we're also waiting to see what happens with uh, President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. Um, while polls show that to be popular, very popular, a poll yesterday showed that 76% of voters uh, support the package. Uh, Republicans are warning that the price tag is too high and some of the non-COVID-19 measures should be eliminated. Among them, Amy is First District Representative Ashley Hinson, who sits on the committee putting together the bill. Um, is she a thumbs up or a thumbs down on this
2: package? She's still a thumbs down. And that's even after, um, you probably saw this morning that the parliamentarian ruled the minimum wage proposal could not be included. Um, Hinson said that doesn't mean that, um, Pelosi won't include it in the final bill. Um, so she's still worried about that happening, but even if it's not there, um, she doesn't like that, um, what she terms less than 9% are things like vaccine, um, tracking and, and testing for the virus. Um, and she, really doesn't like um, the the several million, possibly several billion um, that she says are going to bail out states with chronic budget problems. So I think even if the minimum wage was still left out of the bill, um, she's still going to vote no. And that is coming to a floor vote, as you said later today.
0: So we, we can always find something we don't like about the other party's package, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so uh, did she talk about the $15 an hour minimum wage? That, that seems to be a sticking point for Republicans.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, there, Especially in, in rural states, um, states that don't have a lot of high cost of living, this is a big deal. Um, so I think Hinson's just sort of, um, you know, joining with her party on that. Um, you know, in, in Iowa, you can make the case that $15 an hour is not as needed as in places like California, like New York, like Florida, um, you know, places where it is a lot more expensive to live. Um, But also, you know, it's going to be spread out within five years. So the argument that it's, you know, going to affect businesses right now, today, maybe is a little less hard hitting than if you consider that it's going to be spread over, you know, five years. And also that the minimum wage hasn't been raised since 2009. So even a, a small increase might still be in the cards for a future bill.
0: And there are an awful lot of businesses that are paying more than the 7.25 an hour minimum wage now, so the impact might not be as great. I mean, when you talk about it going from 7.25 to 15, it sounds like a big jump, but uh, you know there are a lot of businesses that are paying eight, nine, ten dollars an hour to for people, you know, starting their jobs. Uh, so right. the changing. impact may not be a, as significant as as Republicans try to make it seem. Well. Ope, the Midwestern expression of surprise is the name adopted by a new political action committee devoted to defeating Governor Kim Reynolds in 2022. It's you know like Ope, somebody I bumped into you. Ope, I didn't see that coming, and I'm not sure exactly what these folks mean. And maybe it's like Ope, that isn't what we thought we were getting when we elected Kim Reynolds. But regardless, um, they're uh, they're raising money uh, to defeat her. They don't have a candidate to run against her, but uh, Ope the Ope PAC, it wants to defeat Kim Reynolds in 2022. uh, Founder Amber Gustafson uh, is is or has been involved in grassroots organizing for a decade, and her goal is to connect issues-based organizations with voters in small towns and micropolitan areas. Uh, She thinks, or she says we should think about rural in a new way, Um, and she says it's not about red barns and black and white cows. Rural is far more rich, complex, and diverse than people think. Um, It's the misconceptions held by power brokers and pundits that make it hard for progressive messages to gain a foothold in small towns and farming communities. Um, I don't think any of us are power brokers, but we try to be pundits. Um, Aaron is someone from suburban Ankeny, uh, a leader in a movement to restrict gun rights, the logical person to reach out to rural voters.
3: Well, I have to tell you, James, as a, a resident of Suburban Ankeny myself, I'm offended by the question, frankly. <laughs> um, it's, a, you know, that's it's that's the challenge for Iowa Democrats right now. Right. Is is. Um, it, and it's interesting, as as I read, as, as I listen to you read the, the, you know, the the kind of the mission statement there. Um She's not wrong. I mean that that gets at um, Iowa Democrats struggle to connect with with rural voters, and and in the last election or two, it hasn't been for lack of effort. Um, they just haven't found the right way to, and I and I think it's getting to the point where it's also fair to wonder if it's just a lost cause anymore. But that that's for um, another topic on another cat podcast on a future. Uh, time but um you know that 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 we, we always talk about uh, oh here the the Democrat Democrats go with another uh a Des Moines centric uh, central Iowa centric nominee or, or party leader um how will they ever you know connect with rural Iowa that way and, and and that is the challenge now maybe maybe this will be different maybe um uh as you mentioned amber Gustafson has been heavily involved in, in grassroots organizing. Um, she's clearly got some experience. Um, but ultimately it it does come down to that message and and having something that in in some way connects with, um, voters outside of, of Des Moines and, and uh, Johnson County and Scott County. So that's, that's the, that's the challenge. And if they, uh, aren't able to pull that off here again, um, they'll be saying, oh, sorry, we weren't able to uh, maximize your donations.
0: So Tom, are are the voters in Bluegrass or LeClaire, you know, these uh, micropolitan areas, um, are are they looking for progressive candidates? Um, I mean, so far they seem to be electing the same old Republicans. Um, You know, is there a place for the progressive message out in rural Iowa?
4: So the short answer to your question is uh, no. I don't think that they're looking for progressive candidates. As you mentioned, they keep uh, electing the, you know, the same conservatives, the same Republicans. Um, long answer is um, I think that that may be changing and sentiments may be different when you're looking at candidates and their stances related to climate change. Um, especially uh, here in these uh, river communities um, where you know you had the devastating flood of 2019 um, and coming on the heels of the derecho and the impact and the damage that that has done um, to rural communities and um, to, to agriculture um, so I think maybe on on that issue on that topic um, voters in areas like um, bluegrass and Leclerc. Might be looking for a candidate who's a little bit more progressive when it comes to issues of tackling climate change, and maybe a little bit more progressive than uh, the Republican Party or conservatives in the state have been up until to this point. But at the same time, um, they're still socially conservative, fiscally conservative. You know, um, lower my taxes, small government. Um, you know, keep government out of my pocketbook as much as possible. Um, you know, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're still looking for those type of candidates. Um, but, you know, if you can find a a, a more socially or fiscally conservative Democrat that might be able to um, push them a little bit more on those environmental issues, I think, yeah, maybe you could find some inroads in some of these smaller um Suburban exurban areas like like LeClaire and, and uh, Bluegrass.
0: It, it, and Amy, a, a similar question. I mean, when you look at the Cedar Valley area outside of Cedar Falls and Waterloo, um, do you see any signs that voters are, are looking for uh, a progressive candidate, um, their local version of AOC? I mean, is Butler County going to dump Pat Grassley?
2: Butler County will never done Pat Grassley. I think, you know, Pat Grassley does very well there. Obviously the name recognition helps, but he's, he, you know, he's also a leader in the, in the party. People, people like that when they have that sort of local representation, that's doing pretty well. Um, but, you know, I think Tom's right. There, there are, there are inroads that if, if Democrats wanted to sort of try to push that, I think to some extent that's already happening um, with Patty judges focus on uh, rural Iowa initiative and, and there's some others that are going around trying to really appeal to rural voters with those progressive um, tax, but Tom's right. I mean, what Democrats have to really overcome is um, sort of the reluctance of people to to want the government to spend more money. Um, you really have to show that at least Iowa Democrats are not that party if you're gonna win back these rural voters that are just, you know, seeing less and less money coming in all the time and really feeling that financial strain above all else.
4: And I guess the
0: other question here, Todd, is is whether Governor Kim Reynolds. Just
4: one other quick thing I I wanted to to add there. Um, I think the other thing um, for Democrats in these um, in these communities, these rural areas that we saw um, that came up in the 2020 election um, is um, increasingly getting tied into um, kind of the the national narrative and the national races and specifically um, getting uh, branded. with these um, hot button issues like defund the police. You know, we saw that a lot um, here locally in um, the legislative races, you know, the Democrats running uh, against um, uh, like Ross Poston in, in in Bluegrass and um, um, uh, uh, Marie Gleason uh, running against um, Gary uh, Moore here in Bettendorf. Um, you know, they can continue to run ads that were effective, you know, saying that, you know, these are just uh, local extensions of the National Democratic Party. They want to defund the police. They want to push, you know, these these radical uh, agendas or issues And Democrats in Iowa. You know, if you're going to win in these communities, you've got to um, follow, I think, a playbook, maybe closer aligned to the one um, of, of uh, Dave Lobsack. And, you know, get away from those, those national issues, get out into the communities, go into the areas where you know you're, you're not going to be liked, but you're going to be a presence, be there, ask their questions, um, you know, focus more on the, the kitchen table um, issues and leave all of those, you know, more controversial hot button topics um, left on the, on, the, on the national stage and focus more on kind of the homegrown issues here in your community um, and, and leave the national politics out of it. Otherwise, you're going to continue to get this broad brush painted across you of you know, this radical leftist that wants to defund the police.
0: Good point. Um, the other question uh, I had, Todd, is uh, whether Governor Kim Reynolds is in trouble. Um, her handling of the pandemic uh, has given detractors plenty to uh, find fault with. But if the election is between a conservative, tax-cutting, God-loving, Trump-backing Reynolds and an unnamed and perhaps unknown Democrat, are rural voters going to uh, opt for the audacity of hope?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think she's in trouble at this point because, well, she's fortunate to govern in a time where you know, party identification seems to be more important than competence. I mean, Republicans... Uh, I, I, think, I think she deserves criticism for her pandemic response, but to listen to Republicans, she should be maybe awarded the Nobel Prize in both medicine and economics for her response. They're, they're very, uh, very happy with the way she's done this, at least that's <clears> what they say. So yeah, I, I don't think at this point she's in trouble. And you know, it's, it's gonna make, whoever her opponent's gonna be is gonna make the big difference. And I, I don't know at this point, uh, you know how that democratic uh, field is going to shake out but uh, certainly she didn't exactly win by a landslide in 2018 so I don't necessarily uh, governor, gubernatorial elections are a little different in Iowa I think maybe than senate elections or con- congressional elections sometimes uh, they break a little bit differently so I wouldn't say democrats don't have any chance but at this point I mean, if if she does run for governor, which I assume she will, uh, she's going to have the you know full backing of of the Republican Party and all of the various you know large donor interest groups that that always back Republican candidates, which which always makes her makes an incumbent tough to beat. Well, and when when that
0: happens, uh, we'll talk about it on a future edition of On Iowa Politics. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Send your fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. And you can find us on the homepages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Career, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Milk and Eggs will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Amy, Tom, Aaron, Todd, and our producer, Stephen I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well.
5: All the bad things you've done And every time you think of it